Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books and publications on politics, policy, and more, all written by faculty at Princeton's School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Corrine McConaughey, who is brand new to Princeton, coming to us from George Washington University. Corrine's work is focused on how political identities from party identification to race, gender, and ethnicity are formed and function in the American political system. She's the author of a book on the politics of women's voting rights, The Women's Suffrage Movement in America, a reassessment, which we'll be discussing today. Welcome to the show, Corrine. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be joining you and to be joining the Princeton community. We're getting you started right away with a podcast, so I really, really appreciate it. Um, but it's important because this month, August 18th, 2020, marked the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which legally ended the use of sex as a quali- qualification for the right to vote. So I'm hoping that you can take me and our listeners sort of back in time um, and explain what was happening then and how far you think we've come since. In the beginning of the discussion of women's voting rights, it was being discussed right alongside this idea of universal suffrage, this idea that the United States really ought to be a full democracy and have this newfangled thing called universal suffrage, which meant the idea of doing away with a lot of qualifications on voting rights that uh, had long been accepted, most importantly, race and sex. And so the 1840s conversations are about, are we going to have universal suffrage or are we going to have universal male suffrage? And there's this movement for universal suffrage that is where we meet the sort of now infamous cast of characters of the, you know, women's suffrage, Laura, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They're going to have been in the circles of that conversation and they're going to be gone as well as this idea of the U.S. Constitution actually enshrining a universal right to vote by the time we are looking at uh, what's happening in in, in 1920. We took this path. We didn't take the path of universal suffrage. We took this path of deciding that the way to deal with issues of voting rights is to not take away from states their fundamental power to define who can be a voter, but to just put specific limits on that. So it's not the case that in 1920, women are voting for the first time. There are plenty of states where women um, have been voting for quite some time, uh, as early as the 1890s. In some places, women were fully equal um, in their voting rights. Uh, so that that idea of we're going to get to a national amendment that will that will not get us women having a guaranteed right to vote, but that will add sex to the list in the U.S. Constitution about what states can no longer mess around with in declaring what the qualifications of voters are. So your book's central argument is that women's voting rights were won through what you call coalition politics. Uh, I guess this means like farmers. I remember seeing that in the Mm -hmm. the book description. Can you tell us a bit more about coalition 
politics and how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, so there's this fundamental vexing question at the heart of all this, right? Which is, so if there are people that politicians have already decided don't get to hold them accountable, why would those very same politicians ever say, hey, actually, why don't you also hold me accountable, right? So this idea of extending the right to vote is is really a puzzle. Like, why do politicians do this? One way to answer that question that a number of other scholars have offered is to say, oh, well, they do it so that they can get the votes of those newly included voters. This is a strategic look for new bases of support. Then there's a couple of flies in that ointment there, though. It's really hard to conceive of just how often a party could be in control of enough seats and have enough leverage to push something through this over these big institutional hurdles and yet also think, that they're threatened enough to need to do so. The other problem when looking at women's suffrage in particular was that the historical record is just replete with so much clarity that women were understood to be just as heterogeneous as men. As women started this push for we want to be included. They, they, like the activists themselves from the start were a, a politically partisan-leaning diverse group looking in some narrow pockets, again, as the sort of mythologized version of history would tell us. So if we just look at the really salient figures of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucy Stone, you know, like we'll see that oh they're they're all abolitionist and they so they're republican but like that that's that's just very unrepresentative of the category um so you can't get there you can't get pressure enough to surmount these hurdles it seems with just that with just the idea of well and the further we go, the more suffrage activists, in fact, are pushing on that because the arguments of feminism say, you know, women have full brains. <laughs> women can, right, so that even the suffragists themselves have their own sort of feminist logics for saying, well, we can't, we can't, we won't promise you, we can't, we won't. Like women think, like that's the whole point of us asking for the right to vote. So what do they have to do? They have to find another way to have leverage. And that's what I mean by the essential need for coalitions to make this politics of expanding the electorate in an already functional but limited democracy work is that, well, you need a way that status quo politicians see a change in their own incentives. And so you need groups that are willing to push for this extension. Um, and that's what, that's what ultimately becomes the key tool of women's suffrage politics, like the institutional politics of getting this thing passed as a policy. If we want to understand 
why we got women's suffrage when we did, where we did, we have to look at where did the where did the electoral pressure for that come from? Um, and it's these it's these coalitions with farmers groups, which are huge player in the era of um, women's suffrage organizing, and then toward the latter era, the sort of nineteen tens on, uh, labor unions um, become even more central, and the two third parties across this era that are um, that emerge exactly because they're trying to to um, because they're able to build some base around the labor farmer um, organizations themselves, that those third parties, both the populists in the 1890s and the progressives in the 1910s, also turn into women suffrage coalition partners um, that actually exert an enormous amount of, of electoral leverage that sort of changes the game. Yeah, that's interesting. I feel like a lot of people don't think about these coalition partners. I know it's it's new to me. Um, and I know in the book, you kind of walk through some case studies. I don't know if you can briefly maybe mention some of them. I think there's five that you looked at. Um, I don't want to get too academic on this podcast. Um, it's sort of a more general look so that they'll go read the book. Could you provide us with maybe one or two? Colorado might be my favorite case study, and it's also the first one I present in the book. It's the second state in the country to become a woman suffrage state. Colorado, I think, is fascinating in that, gosh, isn't it lucky that the first victory, in fact, happened in a place where the coalitional model was actually really clear to see, right? The, the populist party element of it, I think it helped a lot. Louisiana is probably like my second favorite case because, you know, the standard story of the South is Women's suffrage was never going to happen in the South because the South is this just never wants to open the question of voting rights again because it's managed despite the 15th Amendment uh, by the time women are pushing for voting rights in the South, which is a little bit later than they started in other um, areas. So by turn of the century, you know, oh, the South has pushed has established Jim Crow, has pushed Black Americans out of the electorate quite successfully with with that Jim Crow system. Oh, I mean, never want to open the question of anybody's voting rights again. And Louisiana shows that that's, that's not quite true. Um, and in fact, that um, Louisiana has this little spike of a progressive challenge um, to its one-party dominant politics. So that's the story of the South, that that the South in this era is just one-party dominant, and a dominant one-party doesn't need any new voters. It doesn't even really need its current voters, right? Like, it's so dominant, it can lose some um, supporters that can choose to stay home. They don't really have other choices. But, but Louisiana ma- manages to have this, like, blip of a moment where there's some real organization uh, in the wake of progressivism, in the wake of of Roosevelt's run for the progressive ticket. There's this tiny moment of partisan challenge in Louisiana, and Louisiana almost passes its own woman suffrage 
bill. Like it comes really, really close. Um, and that was just an amazing find to me because the standard story of the South was like nothing happening there, right? Yeah, I think diving into the states in that way, um, you know, gives us opportunity to see the story play out differently, but with these elements that just keep repeating. And that's how you have this sense of, oh, there is a common story here. Like there's a common set of essential elements to how this works. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, that was really helpful. Thank you. Uh, I do want to talk about some of the key actors who drove women's right to vote. I did see on one of your Twitter threads that you had posted that black women, some of whom weren't able to vote for another several decades, were among some of the key actors in the movement. So I'm curious, are there suffrage figures that you feel should be praised or maybe talked about more for their advocacy of a broader, more intersectional range of voting rights? I think that it's absolutely true that the set of actors we look at to tell the story of women's suffrage is just doesn't do the real story of what happened any justice. The women of the National Party and of what's first called the Congressional Union and the, the Women's Party, so the the more militant group at the tail end of the movement being led by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, those two organizations are like hugely resourced and run by these more well-to-do, more access to power and more access to media, more access to donors, and they're writing their own books. And the National has literally a separate endowed by almost a million dollar gift um, propaganda it has a separate that's just for the propaganda outlet at the end right that's the kind of money that the national parties were using for their campaigns so like these were these were massively resourced organizations and they built they played a big part in building themselves as a sort of mythologized center and so yes i would like for us to question that mythology and look at why it exists and who is missing and why they're missing. I also don't want to fall into just a different version of the trap of sort of over-celebrating individual figures. Mm -hmm. Because I think that what I found most important in this work that I was doing on, like, how do we get there and how do we overcome this, this huge hurdle of getting really uh, a, a, a more functional, larger, more inclusive democracy, uh, th- there are no superheroes to do that work. That's everyday, ordinary people in big numbers. To tell the tale of mass democracy just sort of being handed down from on high or claimed by a few superheroes is not really the story I want to tell. Yes, I want to question... Um, as many are now doing around the centennial, I want to question, well, if we are going to celebrate some individual figures, why is it this, you know, circumscribed set of white ladies? And I would certainly have names to add of other women who are in leadership positions whose leadership mattered. Women like Ida B. Wells, Mary Church Terrell, who are advocating um, at that, you know, intersection of being black and a woman, and and what does that particular challenge um, present? 
There are amazing stories of leadership of what at the time would refer to themselves as Spanish uh, women um, out West. Um, but, you know, today we might use the term Latina, but they, they never would have doing it, you know, in import Adelina Otero Warren. So there are names that we could add. But in some sense, I just, I really want the takeaway to be, you know, I don't want to build more individual monuments. I want us all to understand how much democracy requires from all of us. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. I, I have another person I need to ask about from this time. And I'm sure you're probably aware, as all of our listeners are, that this summer we became the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and we stripped Woodrow Wilson from our name. Um, so I'm curious what role Woodrow Wilson played in women's suffrage. Uh, I had read that in 1918 he gave a speech of support, but that sort of throughout his first term, he was a little more lukewarm on it. So um, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I don't think that we can point to anyone in the office of president over the entire time span who I'd be like, yeah, they were an actual advocate <laughs> of <Yeah>. women's suffrage. <laughs> so Wilson among them. Wilson is the figure who, you know, is both villain and hero in the narrative of what we know about um, the White House picketers who are not from the national, but are from the um, uh, the Women's Party, the, the more militant branch stage as pickets of the White House and antagonize Wilson in particular, right? Like, this is Mr. President, how long must, must we wait for liberty. There are banners on some of the picket days comparing him. They call him Kaiser Wilson, right? So mm -hmm. um, he ultimately either orders or turns the other cheek. Who knows for absolutely sure about um, ultimately those women are some of those um, protesters, conveniently some of the um, the leadership of, of that militant flank um, end up Right, being hauled off to jail to a workhouse on charges of obstructing a sidewalk. Uh, some of them go on a hunger strike. They're force-fed, um, beaten. And yet the story is also that Wilson sees how that's getting bad press and, you know, is also instrumental in them um, being released. So what do I think of Wilson? I, I think that he was a shrewd politician who understood the idea of holding on to power, but also the, like, how do you hold on to power and use it for your own ends, but also understood when his back was in a corner, right? Understood when he was under real pressure um, that might endanger some of his other goals. And I think that that's probably ultimately the story of Wilson um, and women's suffrage is that he was a smart enough politician to know when the electoral pressure really was too much. Well, sort of, I'm now thinking about today because um, Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as mm -hmm. his VP. And I don't know, I'm just thinking about presidential party tickets. So uh, how do you feel about this move today? And what does it mean that there's never been, you know, a woman in the White House? What do you think? I have trouble being surprised. I mean, we started this conversation talking about it's the centennial of the 19th Amendment that didn't actually grant women the right to vote, but just said 
states can't use sex as a disqualifier. And I think looking at the suffrage movement really lays bare for me just how politically hard progress on women's rights and women's full political inclusion is. Part of me is almost amazed that we're here at this moment, right? Like, um, I'm almost amazed that in, in my own daughter's lifetime, they've seen um, a woman run for president and of a major party and a woman, a black woman, actually on the ticket uh, as a vice president too, meaning, right, that she had to be holding a sort of space in uh, party politics that made who she was in the totality of that package to be seen as an asset. That's actually impressive to me. So actually to say, well, women haven't become equal in their representation across American political institutions. And yet we've had two elections back to back where we've had women on the highest office ticket That actually in some ways seems really sensational to me. Well, we're just about out of time. So I'm going to end with a straightforward yet probably very layered question. And you were kind of getting to this a little bit. Um, As a woman, how do you feel on a personal level about this anniversary? I'm sure it's a complicated answer. It is so complicated. (laughs) I, I like found myself like deeply conflicted again in the sense of what mythologizing uh, am I doing and um, you know who's out there telling the story I would like to retell and for me it maybe seems strange to you know spend over a decade of your life in research on this write a book and then be fundamentally asking yourself, should I really be celebrating? (laughs) Um, Or should I just be telling uh, the story of democracy is really hard and we're in a moment where I think some of us are just realizing that. So I guess my way of marking the centennial has actually been more about asking myself and the audiences that I get to engage, whether that audience is my kids or my students or podcast listeners, what I want to for us to take away is like an individual obligation to keep doing the work of democracy. And that's the problem of celebration is that it, it seems like it's the marking of an ending of something, uh, an outcome. And I, I just want to make that not the way we think about what we're marking. What we're marking is like an important moment in an ongoing struggle. And so what part are you going to play um, in this ongoing story is, um, is basically what I've been challenging my audiences, large and small, and myself to take the moment of the centennial to, to ask that question. I can't really think of a better way to end this episode than with that 
kind of call to action. Kareen, thank you so much for joining us today. We I really appreciate it. I had a great conversation with you and welcome to Princeton. Great. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is recorded, edited, and produced by me, Rose Huber. And I also want to give a shout out to our visual designer, Egan Jimenez, for creating the branding for the show. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs.